on TV. We're not here to talk about your love life. We're here to talk about Doctor Who. Yeah, that's a show. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah. My um, Britbox kind of binge has kind of subsided. Has it? I think it was a kind of end of lockdown kind of frenzy. Yeah, when you were just like, I haven't watched everything I could possibly watch, I should really try. Yeah, yeah, it's got taken over by... Do you know what? I'm watching a... It's like a drama slash soap on Amazon called This Is Us, because Russell T Davis said it was good. And it is good. Well, that sounds like very high-end popular culture. We're here to talk about Doctor Who. Okay. That's all we're going to talk about. Do you want to know some news about the extended world of Doctor Who? Uh, yes. Okay. Coming soon from Candy Jar Books, Lethbridge Stewart, The Haunting of Gabriel Chase. A prequel to Ghostlight featuring the Brigadier, I hear you say. Ooh. That sounds fantastic. Ah. So I'll be reading that. It's been announced that uh, in the later Christopher Eccleston Ninth Doctor audios, he's going to encounter the Cybermen. Cybermen. The Cybermen. Jeff Cybermen. He's going to encounter the Cybermen on the set of Fritz Lang's 1927 motion picture Metropolis. As in, they're making the film, like it's set during the making of the film. Yeah. That's quite cool. That's a good idea. That's really good. Um, Oh. Crack-a-doo. Also, he's going to meet the Brigadier, as played by Nick John John Colshaw. Is he playing young Brig or Battlefield Brig? I don't know. I don't. We don't know what time period it'll be. Or Sarah Jane Adventures Brig. No one wants that. Um, a downtime Brig. That's what I want. Yeah. Where he's old, but mm. he's not mega old. Yeah. And also, Big Finish has won the Best Audio Drama Award at the Audio Awards 2021 with the Eighth Doctor box set Stranded Volume One. The Audio Awards. Yes. Mm. Sounds promising. <laughs> Terrible. Now, Jack, there's been a big loss across the world and within the Doctor Who community. Did they lose the Web Planet? Again. No. Um, Prince Philip died. Now He wasn't I, in Doctor Who. That's what you think. But I've done some digging. Yeah. And uh, I went on to TARDIS Wiki. Hmm. And Prince Philip has a long, long uh, history with the show. So, when Polly Wright met Bernie Summerfield, the two drank together and Polly thought to herself that some of the words that came out of Benny's mouth would make Prince Philip blush. Mm. That was in The Time I Nearly Destroyed the World Whilst Looking for a Dress. Okay. By the mid-20th century, he was the Duke of Edinburgh, according to The Dance of the Voodoo Valkyries. Yes. He was pictured with Elizabeth II, where they were handing a trophy to Bobby Moore in The Lie of the Land. Yeah. In 2020, Prince Philip was kidnapped by Sorb and Sarg and stored on their ship in the Lucy Wilson stories, which are like a Brigadier book spin-off thing. And, perhaps most fascinatingly, the writer Joseph Lister was reading the novelisation of Resurrection of the Daleks when the death of Prince Philip was announced. Really? Didn't they relate it? Yes, I think so. But you missed the most important thing, is that uh, Buckingham Palace nearly gets trashed by the Titanic. Yeah, but he was off somewhere, wasn't he? You see see the back of the Queen. Yeah, but he might have just been indoors, been like, I don't fucking believe it. (laughs) Having an angry shit. And, uh, of course, uh, having an angry (laughs) shit. Matt Smith played Prince Philip in The Crown. He did. A huge loss for the world of Doctor Who there. And Prince Philip. Mm. It's a good job um, that Doctor Who isn't airing at the moment because if it had been cancelled due to because they they didn't show anything on the BBC, did they? Yeah, they would have. 
they would have cancelled it. There wouldn't have been no Doctor Who on. Mm. It was like when Princess Diana died, and uh, I was sat sat down on a Saturday to watch the Armageddon Factor on UK Gold. Yeah, and they'd replaced it with um, Planet of the Spiders yeah. because the Armageddon Factor features the death of a princess, whereas Planet of the Spiders just opens with a car crash. Yes. We're, today we're covering two Doctor Who's, mm. Doctors Two and Three. We haven't covered any of their stories so far on this podcast, have we? No, we haven't. We haven't. So let's talk a little bit about, can you remember the first time you saw John Pertwee as the Doctor? So this would have been on the tapes. The tapes. The tapes. I don't have a memory of a first story. He was just always there. It prob- It was either one of the two Auton stories, or I've got strong memories of Planet of the Daleks, which has the best cliffhanger of all time, because for me it wasn't resolved for maybe like seven, eight years. Um <laughs> Because we forgot that episode four, was it, was on? Yeah, it's when... they didn't record it. They try and make that that hot air balloon at the bottom of the Dalek City to float up, which is just a shit idea. But it's so (laughs) tense because I just thought they must have been killed for, like, years. Like, I just couldn't believe that they could have got out of it, even though I saw the following episodes. Where they were all clearly alive. Um, And so it took, yeah, it took about seven or eight years for me to finally see them just get lifted by... Kirby wires up that shaft. Yeah, with the Dalek flying after them as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it was it was the most gripping thing I'd ever seen. It was a missing episode, but only for the Reese household yes. in the nineties. Yeah. Until eventually, it came out on the VHS. Yeah. In a tin. Yeah. But I I've got memories of John Pertwee being like the cuddliest Doctor in terms of he's very warm and like it didn't it never really the only story that scared me from John Pertwee's time. Uh, I think was the claws of Axos. Really, most of them didn't scare me. It's interesting you say he's cuddly because I find him. I'm. I've had a bit of an on-off relationship with the Pertwee years for many years, and I'm currently liking the Pertwee years. Yeah. But I found him for a long time to be the least approachable Doctor. Like he's quite authoritative and kind of authoritative. And a bit like he almost, even though he's kind of people do say he's part of the establishment, which isn't quite true. But he just feels like alien, almost like he like. I can see a lot of it in Capaldi's performance as well. And as a kid, I didn't really take to that. I just thought he looked like our nan, <laughs> so I just found him very nanish. Warm. Nanish, yeah, yeah. Like the mother like... with the mother mother hen or the mother goose with the cape. Yeah, he's just a he's just a terse dinner lady. <laughs> yes, I'm sure that's what he'd be. He'd want to be remembered for with a mighty nose. With a mighty nose. The first time I saw him was actually. Uh, the Time Warrior. Yeah. So for a long time as a kid, The Time Warrior and Death to the Daleks were the two main Pertwee ones we had. So I always associated Sarah with Jean Pertwee rather than um, Katie Manning. Okay. Well, I recently re-watched quite a few Pertwee stories. I like them all. Time Warrior, great. And I've always really liked Planet of the Spiders, even though it could lose about two episodes. Yeah. I mean, one episode is just a chase. Yeah. But I always like that. I like the use of comedy yokels in the Pertwee era. It's a kind yeah. of it's kind of a lost thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, this we'll come back to that when talking about the Paradise of Death. Well, that brings us nicely onto the Paradise of Death. So, the Paradise of Death was first broadcast in five episodes on BBC Radio Five, a station which at the time was solely on AM radio in the UK, from the twenty seventh of August to the twenty fourth of September, nineteen ninety three. So at the time, in the August Doctor Who magazine, issue number 202, it was announced on the front cover, The long wait is over, Doctor Who's back, 
with a straight-to-video anniversary special called The Dark Dimension. Doctor Who Magazine 203. News inside of Doctor Who's return to TV. You move to one page to another that says on a further page to the back and it just goes, it's cancelled. Ah, oh, pretties. I know. What a, what a disaster. As a result of that, downtime was delayed by a year because that was supposed to be for the anniversary, although it didn't materialise until 1995. And they said it was because there was new Doctor Who coming back and they didn't want to compete with it. But actually, it was just that they didn't have the money to make it. The comic strip running at the time was Emperor of the Daleks, which we've previously covered. Yeah. Power of the Daleks was released as a book, script book, and an audio during that time. People just couldn't get enough of Power of the Daleks. Yeah. Someone must have read and listened to them all at the same time. Yeah. Me. The Ghost Light soundtrack was released on CD, because it's full of absolute bangers. Evil of the Daleks came out as a book... The Curse of Peladon was on video, and the comic strip running was Final Genesis. Ever read it? No. No. Also out at the time were these stylish t-shirts, I don't know whether you remember them, of Doctor Who characters with one of their famous lines. They were everywhere at 90s conventions, um, and they had a John Pertwee one, which said, reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. Nicola Bryant, these corridors all look the same. Nicholas Courtney, can you guess what his was? Uh, Five Rounds Rapid. Liberty Hall. Deborah Watling. Um, ah! <laughs> William Hartnell. Jolly good smack bottom. No. Hmm. Really? Yes. It's, and what? Then, <laughs> and then Colin Baker's classic catchphrase. Um, change, my dear. No. The cat that walks alone. Which he didn't even say as the Doctor, but he did say it on an episode of Blue Peter when he went on there, and he was like, I like to see my Doctor as like a cat that walks alone. What fucking... Fucked hard wrote those. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't even find a picture of them. I remember seeing them everywhere. I couldn't even find a picture. When everywhere, I mean at Doctor Who conventions. It wasn't like the high streets mm. everybody was wearing. They don't look good based on that one picture. I, I, that was in Doctor Who magazine. I couldn't find a single picture on the World Wide Web. Per- Perry's head looks like those heads you get in like um, wig shops. She like does. The, the mannequins. It's a visual reference that the listeners won't get, unfortunately. Yeah, but uh, they can Google. They can, they can't. You can't find this picture on the internet. We'll oh. put it up. We'll put it up, guys. Okay. I get nostalgic seeing Colin Baker with short nineties hair. I know. Before he really. <laughs> uh, Before he won Tony Selby's pudding eating competition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Classic nineties, Colin. He anyway. changes the most from decade to decade, I it's feel. It's true. Like. I like his little beard now. He's got a little beard. He looks yeah. like our Uncle Derek. Yeah. Or he, he looks a bit like a kind of comic book guru man. Comic book guru man? No, I'm thinking of comic book guy. Oh, from The Simpsons? Yeah. Yeah, I'll take that. Someone that always wears a lanyard. After a gruesome murder at London's new theme park, Space World, the Doctor, along with the Brigadier, Sarah Jane and Jeremy Fitzoliver, go to investigate. The theme park is filled with virtual reality attractions and what appear to be real alien creatures. It soon turns out that the theme park is in fact run by real aliens who wish to open a trade deal with the Earth. When Sarah is kidnapped and taken to the aliens' homeworld, Paracon, the Doctor, the Brigadier and Jeremy give chase in the TARDIS. On Paragon, they learn that the miracle plant the aliens are hoping to trade with is actually a parasite, and their VR setups are actually the recorded memories of real people, often controlled by the ringleaders Freeth and Tragen. They also discover a weak and corrupt planet, and a government manipulated by Freeth and Tragen. The Doctor and co join forces with the local rebels and start a revolution. 
The paradise of death. Yeah. The paradise of death. Not much of a paradise. It's not. There isn't that much death. There isn't, no, but I think it's because they go to... I think it's a double meaning. Obviously, the paradise feeling that Trigon gets when he's experiencing death through like the VR headsets. Yeah. And also, they go to the paradise mm. planet and it's a war zone. Yes, that's true. Have you heard this before? I thought I hadn't, but it turns out I had. Right. It brought back a, a vague memory. So I must have listened to it at some point, but I can't remember when. I remember when it was actually broadcast. Yeah. I've got. A, I didn't really follow it. I just remember y- you listening to it and vaguely being like, "Oh, look at that!" But I couldn't follow it. Right. And I think as a as a kid, it's quite hard to follow. Yeah, and I guess Doctor Who audio, you thought that'll never catch on. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. So I remember listening to it on holiday in Lanzarote when we were kids and listening to it again and again and again Mm. and thinking it was the fucking greatest thing in the world because it was new Doctor Who yeah yeah and not only was it new Doctor Who it was new third Doctor and Brigadier yeah so it was exciting stuff and like that hadn't really been done before the whole casting a past Doctor as a current Doctor if that makes sense like Mm. we're used to it with Big Finish now Mm. and comic strips and things could jump around but it was quite groundbreaking to make a new Doctor Who, not with the current Doctor. Yes, yeah. Um, why didn't they go for Sylvester McCoy? John Pertwee says he came up with the idea, but John Pertwee always says stuff like that. Yeah. But essentially what happened was Dirk Maggs, who produces a lot of audio in England, a lot of, a lot of sci-fi stuff, a lot of the hitchhiker stuff and mm. things like that, was producing stuff for BBC Radio. And he did something with John Pertwee, and he just said they discussed it, and they're like, "Oh, we should do a Doctor Who." Mm. So it was always that John Pertwee just fancied doing Doctor Who. And Mags kind of set up the idea, and then couldn't do it. So another guy, Phil Clark, got involved. Yeah. And it was originally going to be ten episodes, and it was going to be two ten-part episodes, and then it was cut down to five. Mm. And th- there you go. And then later on, they did the Ghosts of N Space. Yeah. Don't want to ask what the N stands for. <laughs> Yes. What did you think this time round? I well, I remembered my feeling of when I listened to it the first time, which is it goes su- it goes at such a fast pace that by the end of it, I really lost track of where I was. But You're that's on ca- Paragon. I know, but it's just that it really fucking zips by. There's, as in, there's a lot of incidents and a lot of changes of location. Yeah. But it's got jokes. It's fast paced. Um, it doesn't dick about. But it's it's balmy, kind of Flash Gordon kind of stuff, but done in the nineties. Yeah, it's the, it's a bit of a weird kind of. This isn't nostalgia driven. No, it's not. Oh, let's try and make some Doctor Who like it was in the glory days of the seventies. Yeah, it's let's make a new Doctor Who with yeah. an old team, a noticeably older sounding team as well. Yeah, it feels a bit like a kids, a bit a bit like a bit a bit like a pantomime. Like it's the kind of thing that if you. When they wrote like the ultimate adventure, it reminded me a bit of that in terms of it's like a proper like Saturday morning kids approach to a Doctor Who story and just like cram loads of stuff in, and uh, everything changes every ten minutes or so. It's got it's got a, like an old school adventure serial vibe to it. Yeah, I think so, and it's it is Doctor Who done nineties style, but it's also done by people that are completely out of touch with the nineties. Yeah, yeah. It, so it is. It's what somebody thinks science fiction is like in the 90s who who hasn't made science fiction since the 70s and 80s. Yeah, that's true. I guess um, there's a really big influence 
of old radio comedy in terms of there's like most of the cast are really posh and plummy. Mm. And then again, if there is talking about comedy yokels, it's that everyone's really posh and plummy and of the from the upper class. And then occasionally they'll just be like someone going, Here we go, here we go. <laughs> oh <right>, governor <laughs> You know, it's nineties in that in that kind of way, you know, you get VR which was felt like it was going to take off in the nineties mm. and actually only kind of took off in the like 2015-16 so it's more like the augmented reality we get now and then there's this theme park and you know this is only Disneyland Paris had only Mm. opened a year before so I imagine that was quite an influence on it as well yeah on Hampstead Heath yes we all know what exciting action happens on Hampstead Heath yeah can you imagine them just tarmacking it over and putting a theme park there well I've been there where they have a theme they have like a, A a fun fair and it's nowhere near the heights of what they do in this. Yeah. So it was written by Barry Letts, yeah. who uh, was the producer of Doctor Who in the 70s, and also wrote under a pen name, and often with uh, a collaborator, The Demons, The Time Monster, The Green Death, and The Planet of the Spiders. Was Robert Sloman a, a pseudonym? No, uh, Guy Leopold was uh, Barry Letts's right. pseudonym. But, but yeah, no, Robert Sloman is a real person. Because I've never seen a picture of him or ever heard him talk. There's a myth makers with him, I think. So you can uh, see him interviewed if you want. He was obviously one of Barry's mates. Yeah. Um, what do you think of Barry's previous Doctor Who's? I I no, I like him. I think he's good. I I like I like that he's a Buddhist. Yes. I like that a bloody liberal Buddhist. Yeah. He had a quite a well-rounded approach to the show and life in general. Well, yeah, and he was just like put some bit of politics, f- few jokes, action. Like he had, he had the kind of all-rounder approach that isn't that dissimilar to someone like Russell T Davies's approach in terms of like this is a family show, so we need a bit of this, bit of that. Sexy young assistant. Um, Sexy young young assistant in her forties. Yeah. Who? In in this one. Oh, in this, yeah. Something for the dads, eh? Yeah, but also it's very like it's it's a set it's a seventies approach to family entertainment, and it kind of doesn't. It doesn't really apply to the to the nineties. I think his stories. I actually dis not dislike, but they're my le- they're some of my least favorite of the Pertwee eras, and all of them apart from the Time Monster are kind of hailed as these great classics. Mm. But they they're the ones that work the least for me. Like mm. I mean, everybody bloody loves the demons, don't they? And I'm just I'm not fussed on it. I haven't watched it all the way through. But I, you, do you know what? When I think of the demons, I don't actually think of the demons. I think of the convention in Oldbourne that we went to. Yes. Just like most of the cast will just remember shooting it. Return to Devil's End, the convention of the night. Oh, was it called that? Or was it a day in, a day with the demons? Maybe. Something like that. And they got all the cast there apart from Katie Manning. Yeah. And they still do that convention, but the amount of people that that were in the show that go there mm. get less every year because they keep dying. Yeah. It's now basically just Katie Manning and John Levine. Yeah, in a in a Nero. <laughs> when we went it was called Noncecon. <laughs> Katie Manning and John Levine stood outside that pub and that church going, "Oh, this was where Nick did his thing." And I remember John did that and yeah. yeah, and the stories get more embellished every year. And also every few years somebody goes back and makes a documentary with them there. Hmm. And it just, you know, it's just really milking that last bit of classic Doctor Who until the only people they've got left to interview yeah. is the baby from Curse of Fenric. So what do we think of his writing here? Oh, it's it's 
Well, there's there are some good bits in it, and he gets political. He does. There's a political commentary about almost like a a, a highly capitalist society where everyone is they're not citizens. What are they? They're in, they're um, investors. There's a line in there who says they're they're they're, they're stakeholders. Yeah. And they're just um, after a life of a, a lot of um, decadence and kind of financial wealth, they just turn into this kind of late Roman Empire kind of uh, cynical and um, self-destructive society. Just interesting, you know. Reminds me a lot of East London. <laughs> um, and there's there's a like the first cliffhanger is really effective, and he packs a lot in. But there's a lot of guff in there that there I just is. don't know where it's... it's... It's full of big ideas. So you get alien war zones and vicious monsters and political intrigue and alien jungles. And it's a bit, as you said, Flash Gordon. It's a bit Year of the Sex Olympics. A bit Claws of Axos. Yeah. Um, and then it's got three settings, which is what the Bristol boys, Bob Baker and Dave Martin, always used to do. They'd all, like, If you look at their stories, in order to keep things moving, they're always like, it's set here, then we go to here, and then we go to here, and they're always like... You know, the invisible enemy, you're on a planet, then you're on a hospital, mm. and then you're in the doctor's mind, yeah. walking around inside Tom Baker. It was a bit of a sausage fest to begin with. Yes, yes it was. I mean, the only woman in it for the first few episodes is Sarah Jane Smith. Uh, that that uh, magazine editor appears very briefly, yeah. but it's a proper... It's all the actors that have... Like, hangovers from the 70s, mm. and early 80s coming back to do parts a lot of them are people who have done Doctor Who before yeah and it's all very like I mean it's all very camp Mm. and over the top we'll get to that in a minute when we talk about the actors but there are as you say there are some exciting things in there like the end of episode 2 is it where they land in a war zone it's kind of right out of left field yeah and then in episode as you say episode 1 where the Doctor dies but but, but we can hit someone's been manipulated into jumping off a building like, yeah. that's quite sinister. It is. Like, the cliffhangers, I thought, were quite quite good on the whole. Um, as a 30th anniversary special of sorts, and actually it's the only new bit of serious Doctor mm. Who, in inverted commas, yeah. um, that you get for the 30th anniversary, why no big monsters or returning enemy? I it reached a point where I thought, have I forgotten that there is an old monster in this? Because mm. if you're doing, like, a proper, an adventure serial that sums up Doctor Who... Then they, you know, zip around to lots of different planets, lots of different locations. You would expect just the Daleks to turn up by, you know, the fifth episode or something like that, just to make it similar to like the Ultimate Adventure, yeah. like some just a one-off story that gets everything about the show in it. Yeah, I mean, I imagine had Roger Delgado been alive, one of those characters would have been the master. Yes. But, yeah. yeah. There we go. There's a couple of continuity errors. What's that? So, the CD notes say it's set fits seamlessly into television continuity between the Time Warrior and the invasion of the dinosaurs. Now, there's a scene where the Brigadier meets Sarah Jane. Mm. Does the Brig not meet her in in the Time Warrior? That's the point. They never they never actually... Do they meet? I can't remember. I feel like they do. And how does Sarah Jane know about Bessie if she's just met the Brigadier? Uh, it's fucking ridiculous. That's what it is. Barry Letts, call yourself a bloody writer. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, who cares? Yeah. Um, but also, the Doctor's suddenly calling the TARDIS, TARDIS, like Peter Cushing. There's no the all yeah. of a sudden. It's TARDIS. Yeah, it's... Well, the whole naming thing is a big mess. I mean, 
Who the fuck does Susan think she is? Saying that she made up the name for TARDIS. A fucking liar, that's who she is. Typical teenager. Didn't, um, just looking for attention. Yeah. She's like, I'm going to fuck around with these primitive Earth people and be like, I created this. Oh, I named this, yes. It was all me. (laughs) Doesn't Mark Platt in Lung Barrow Mm. retcon that? Or finds a way to fit it into the continuity, doesn't... Mm. It's (laughs) what the people need. It was like, the Doctor picks up Susan... Who isn't really his granddaughter, but sort of is, and she's the last natural born of Gallifrey. And yeah. when he picks her up, he says, "I think it's the other." Yeah. That names the TARDIS. Yeah. And he gets that name from Susan. Yeah. There's a, there's a proper Jeremy Kyle episode in there where it's right. <laughs> so I was the grandfather or the father or no what uh, the other. Yeah. Loom or womb? What is it? <laughs> so um, the Doctor, the third Doctor's here. Is it the same third Doctor? He sounds like a bit of a um, angry Top Gear presenter at times, <laughs> especially when he's driving. Yeah, yeah. Um, it sounds a bit more just like it's John Pertwee. Yeah, but I think so. Pert- but who the hell's that? <laughs> <laughs> Pertwee played the role possibly more straight than anybody else yeah. in the seventies, and then you get this thing of here, Pertwee's kind of. Pertwee's like this, like a chat show star in the nineties, isn't he? Like he shows up on everything, mm. and everybody's just got used to John Pertwee dressed as Doctor Who, mm. just being about. And when he shows up on Doll's House Party and Children in Need and whatever, he gets huge rounds of applause. And it's like people are hungry for that nostalgia. Yeah. So it is. He. It, it's probably more John Pertwee than it is the Doctor. Yeah. But it's still recognisably his Doctor. Yeah. Well, the thing is that Tom Baker could have capitalised on that but he just didn't his hair had changed so he just didn't look the same and he wasn't really up for for, for cashing in on that until he kind of released his autobiography yeah and then he was bloody everywhere wasn't he yeah I do like Pertwee here and he's a, like there's a couple like his chemistry between him and Harold Innocent who we'll come to in a bit is really good and then there's you've got this uh, scene at the end where the Doctor's a gladiator and you can imagine the third Doctor doing that scene but not no. the third Doctor as he sounds here I can imagine Terry Walsh doing that. (laughs) Very true. And there's that brilliant scene where the Doctor wakes up after being dead, naked, again, classic Pertwee. Classic the Doctor in spin-off media, always getting his kit off. Um, And basically charms his coroner. Yeah. He's like, oh, I've read your book, I really admire your work. And then just kind of points out all the flaws, the things that, you know, there's there's a pear under there, it must be nearly half a millimetre. Good stuff. Yeah. I was like... I, there's there's a chemistry there between Pertwee, Sladen, and Courtney that you, that hasn't been lost. Yeah. Even though actually, Courtney and Sarah Jane Smith aren't on screen that often together. Yeah. Um, having done Sarah Jane recently, it's surprising how in 1993 she sounds more like 70s Sarah than naughty Sarah. Yeah. I I think she puts in a great performance here, and the scene of her doing um, VR and killing a soldier. I think is like really well acted, mm. and I'm just I thought I think she's great here. What about you? She did. She sounds exactly like she does on TV. Mm. So it felt it did feel quite seamless, even though John Pertwee sounds older. They all sound much closer to say how Tom Baker sounds now, yeah. trying to re- recreate the seventies. So it does. No, it's very it's very cozy. It's got the same thing, mm-hmm. the, the same atmosphere that I liked in the show. 
Um, and you've got the Brigadier there, obviously. Yeah. Um, who, you know, it, again, it's more Nick Courtney than the Brigadier at this point. Mm. Um, but what's nice is you get to... The, the brig goes to an alien planet. He travels in the TARDIS. Yeah. That's all very exciting stuff. Yes. Yeah. And he also has a line where he says, What a woman! <laughs> <laughs> Which is... Uh, one of one of it just came out of nowhere and I was just like oh um, and then obviously the brigadier leads the rebellion in a, that sort of uh, classic white man authoritarian role of just assuming he can solve it all yeah goes to an alien planet and goes this clearly got more advanced technology and mm. goes I'll probably lead your rebellion mate yeah it's got a uniform <laughs> it's, true. it's true do you think he was wearing the uniform he wasn't on the cover well they're all in plain clothes on the cover no they're not Sarah Jane is wearing a outfit that would only be Sarah Jane. Apparently okay. dressed as the Doctor because he doesn't own any other clothes. And they, they bought a un- uniform for Nick Courtney, but it was too small. Right. So he's in his civvies. Yeah. Should we talk about the supporting cast? Yeah. We've got Freeth, Chairman Freeth, played by Harold Innocent, who you may remember from The Happiness Patrol. But which character was he in that? The Candyman's assistant. Yeah, I think yeah. so. And uh, also Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where he plays the... Um... The priest yeah. that marries them. Yeah. There's a lot of jowly actors in this. There is. Like, yeah, men with big jowls. Yeah, there's a lot of people who definitely drink a bottle of whiskey every day. Yeah. You've got Trigun, played by Peter Miles. And you've got Morris Denham, who plays the president. They're the, they're the big jowly actors, aren't they? Maurice Denim. Maurice Denham. 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 Um, he's from the Twin Dilemma. Yes. Yeah. It's As male. They're they're fucking campus tits, aren't they? Those lot. They are. They are. It's like you you don't hear performances like that anymore. No, but as in, I think they're doing. These are people that I think have probably done a lot of radio comedy, the kind of stuff that you would get from like the fifties, mm-hmm. where it follows this same thing of just yeah, a bit of a camp review show where it, it it's got comedy sergeants and things ba- like comedies based on yeah uh people that have been in the war and sending up politicians uh that is based on the idea that there's like there's the upper class and then there's just like the the working man and it's just constantly about the comedy between them peter miles is probably his nastiest most villainous here like it's way worse than nider yeah he's like s&m Gets off like he does something to Sarah on the ship, and we're not really sure what it is. Yeah, that's gross. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it happened, but yeah. oh, it's it's quite a big cast though, and there's loads of other names. I won't bore you with all of them, but uh, two that stick out playing various bit roles is Trevor Martin, who played Doctor Who on stage. Yeah, and Anya is played by Jane Slavin, who is now the companion to the Fourth Doctor and is in the new David Tennant box set. Ah. and she says, uh, I remember hearing an interview with her. Where um, she thought, I think she thought John Pertwee was a bit of a pompous git. Yeah. And uh, the whole recording session, uh, Pertwee was like, oh, there's an amazing restaurant around the corner. You should go. Just give them my name if you go. And she went and gave the name and they were like, John who? (laughs) Bit of fun continuity here. Yeah. Also in the cast is uh, Richard Pierce playing Jeremy Fitzoliver. Yeah. Now, fandom fucking hated Jeremy at the time. But he feels a bit like, I mean, it's a bit of an it's an interesting performance. But it, again, it's more in that sort of comedy radio thing. Yeah. But he doesn't feel too far away from Harry Sullivan. Yeah. Well, I, he reminded me of, um, uh, you know, not like the same kind of character as in Planet of the Dead, um, Lee 
what's his name? Lee Lee Evans. Lee Evans's character, as in it's just a proper broad, the kind of the kind of comedy character you get in a kids mm. comedy film. Um, but I do like the fact that he kind of plays the more traditional companion role in that he's the one that gets scared and gets into peril. He's almost like a siphon for those yeah. what people think a Doctor Who girl, in quotes. Yeah, it? and Sarah Jane has to look after him. Yeah. And uh, I, I thought that was pretty good. That's I thought it was quite lively and funny. Yeah. In the 90s, everyone forgot that Doctor Who was funny. Yeah, no, but that was um, because everybody watched the Peter Davison's era and Colin Baker's uh-huh. era. And then forgot, like, because the McCoy era is funny in places, mm. but I think Collins' era suffers from being too serious, and a lot of the Davo stuff does. Or Davison's kind of, we were saying this before, Davison's performance is more sarcastic than you remember. Yeah. And it is funnier, but it's after coming after Tom Baker, you don't see the humour as much. Yeah. Because it's not as averse. But, you know, Jeremy, he also reminded me a little bit of Rory. Yes. Like, in the. Harry is in the situations, not the performance. Mm. But it has to be said, like, is anybody, is anybody young in this? Um, no. Like, the Harold Innocent and Morris Denham must only be ten years apart in age. Yeah. You know? It does feel a bit like the last gasp of a bunch of old lovies just having a knees up and probably going to the pub at a lunchtime and then making a bit of Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. Which is no bad thing. Yeah, but... Uh... Harold Innocent. Yeah. What a name. Do you think he lived up to it? I doubt it. Not with performances like those. It's very cramp. It's got the kind of dialogue that you don't get anymore. Yes. Like things like um, like someone might go, like, oh, we're just running around like a bunch of three blind mice. And they go, <laughs> three blind mice? Why, of course, that's it! <laughs> Pass me that blind mouse. <laughs> and, you know, it is, it, like, he relishes the dialogue. It is a... Tregan, you naughty, naughty boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, there's yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, it's fruity as fuck. It is. It is like the fruit like seventies Doctor Who was never this fruity. Yeah. Yeah. It is like you imagine it's like what being at the old Vic in the seventies was like. Yeah. With the, Ian McKellen and Derek Jacobi. Yeah. Just mincing around <laughs> in the <laughs> behind closed doors being super fruity. They got a few things wrong as well though, production wise. The music's wrong. Yeah, but I like I like the fact that they they repeat the howl. Yeah. They do like a double or triple howl, which I'm <laughs> fucking about that. But do you know they also do that in full circle for the first cliffhanger of full circle. You'll notice that they subtly double up the howl effect, um, and they kind of do it here, but more overtly. Mm. The double up howl. It's no, it's 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 interesting. Um, I'd never noticed it before, but it's really effective. Cause just because I really like this version of the, of the theme Me too. Too. It's It's definitely the version that's aged the best. Yeah. There's not a lot of music in it, and when it is, it's synthy, which is kind of unlike 80s-style synths, not mm. the 70s, like, wibbly-wobbly synth. Mm. The sound design, though, I think is really good, but there's not a lot of music in there. But there's a couple of things that sound off, like the interior of the TARDIS, there's a yeah. hum. It's not the right one, though. No. Um, and the TARDIS dematerialises, but it sounds off. It sounds yeah. like it's a really old recording or like someone's holding a microphone up to a VHS of it or something like yeah. that. Yeah. They also use some odd effects from the TV show. Do they? So, you know, in Battlefield, mm. the Doctor has Bessie and he attaches that speed machine. Yeah. When he when he activates that, there's a sound effect used in Battlefield that is used in this for devices. Really? 
it must have just been the same stock library thing, but it's really off because it's it's a, a McCoy era sound effect in John Pertwee's um, story. Wild. Yeah, I can't believe I picked that up and you didn't. I know what's wrong with us. I watched Battlefield last night. Really? Well, some of it. We've talked about this a bit before on the podcast. There's a great deal of nostalgia for Doctor Who around this time. Yeah. And while I don't think anybody's looking for a new series, you know, like another McCoy series or whatever, because the general feeling in the in sort of popular culture is, oh, Doctor Who got a bit rubbish towards the end. Mm. But that, I think a lot of that is unfounded. It's all very much... It's all based on the fact that people loved it when they were 10 and then all of a sudden they were 15 or 18 or 20 and it wasn't the same because mm. they're not 10, um, which we're seeing now with kind of the new series as well. But would you have watched a 90s Doctor Who series with these people in it? I don't think it would have worked. Everyone would have just looked a bit too past it to be doing... Because, I mean, there's a whole thing now of like... Star Wars and Ghostbusters, and you get all the old people out of retirement one more time. Right. So I could see them trying to pull it off. I'm not saying it would have been good, mm. and I suspect um, the Dark Dimension had that happened. Mm. It would have been. I could see why it was ultimately it was Philip Siegel who was like, I don't think this should be made. Yeah. He thought it would damage the brand more by getting a load of yeah. past it actors onto the screen again. Yeah, back on videotape. I mean, yeah, look at. Look at Dimensions in Time, which is a lot of fun. Yeah. But it is just dicking about in Albert Square. It could be a Doctor Who convention. Yeah. Dimensions in Time is what I imagine what a, a 90s version of Doctor Who would have looked like. Lots of moving cameras. Yeah. just, it just 2013! They just didn't know how to do like atmosphere or tone in science fiction mm. like anymore. So just had to go. Yeah. Um, I'm glad they cancelled it. <laughs> Fuck you, Jack. Hot take. Hot take. Doctor Who should have been cancelled and stayed cancelled. Uh, no. Uh, it was repeated between uh, April 12th and the 10th of May 1994 on BBC Radio 2. During this repeat of the serial, by mistake, the episodes were aired out of order. The error generated so many complaints to the BBC's duty office that the corporation realised they had underestimated the size of their listening audience, and uh, that's what led to the sequel. That's when I will have heard it, the repeat in 94. Ah. Or on the t- I had it on tape. No, I, I specifically remember it being on the old-style radio in the front room. Ah. With the, it, was, it was like a faux-50s radio. I know exactly what you mean, yes. Yeah. Because I was, lived in that house. Yes. Um... Would you like to see this animated? No. <laughs> <laughs> Why the fuck would I want to watch that? Uh, um, no. I, do you know what I think? It sounds. It sounds like the soundtrack to a cartoon. Yeah. It's very. It's, it reminds me of a kid's cartoon. I can see into another dimension where this is a dark dimension. This is. Um, there's a one-off Disney Channel animated version of this, and they sell. You know, in in the break, there's Doctor Who chocolate bars advertised. <laughs> I feel like. When they get to the end of animating the missing stories, which I imagine are probably five or six years off, mm. but they're going to do... I th- they've said they're not going to do them all. I don't think anybody believes that. I think they'll be looking at what's next, and I would suspect this and the Pescatons will probably be higher on the list than people think as kind of bits of kind of vintage Doctor Who to animate before okay. they even start thinking about yeah. perhaps doing a big finish or making something completely brand new. Okay. So... 
I'm not saying it's definite, but I think in the next decade mm. there'll be an animated version of this for us to watch and do again. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to say about it? The Doctor references heroin. Does he? Yeah, he says uh, he has this a really good Matt Berry line where he's talking about <laughs> virtual reality, and he goes, um, "It's good. It's too good. So good that you might not you might get tired of real life itself." Hooked on it like <laughs> like a junkie on heroin. Wow. Classic. I would have liked to have seen a story where the third Doctor goes and just helps Junkies. drug addicts. Yeah. <laughs> the we... methadone conspiracy. <laughs> I'm into it. Is it a clanger or a banger? I don't think it's bad, but I don't think it's good. <laughs> I, I just think it is what it is. Okay. I think it's a banger. Okay. I got very nostalgic listening to this piece of 90s Doctor Who. Yeah. And it brought back fond memories of sitting in the sun. The family sitting in the sun, mm. basking around the pool, while I sat in the shade wearing a black t-shirt and black shorts with my Walkman yeah. listening to the Paradise of Death again yeah. and again and again. Yeah, this sounds very fitting in Paradise. Yeah, and we all know that Lanzarote <laughs> was a paradise. So for me, it's a banger. For you, it's a... It just is. It clangs and bangs. Yeah. In equal measures. Too, too, too hot for TV. The second Doctor. Yes. We've not covered any trouting yet. No. We're about to. Trout on. We're getting our trout on. What are your general thoughts on the trouting era? He's my least watched Doctor. Interesting. I I did used to enjoy... I really liked the Mine Robber and the War Games mm. and Tomb of the Cybermen. <laughs> Uh, as a child, um, but everybody raves about him. But too much of his stuff is missing. I went. I used to. I went through the audio soundtracks to the missing stories, and I love that. Yeah. But um, for me, he's just because I'm not interested in watching the animated reconstructions because I've already listened to the soundtrack, so I know what's going to happen. Mm. Um, and everybody raves about him, but I was more into Hartnell. And he, he, Troughton and Colin Baker are my least visited or favoured doctors. Get out. I don't think they're bad. I just, I don't have the same attachment to them as I do all of the other doctors. Troughton is something that, uh, as you say, a lot of his stuff was or is missing. Yeah. So, and we'll come to this a bit, a bit later on, but certainly in the 90s, he's probably the most, the least visible doctor. Hmm. But having said that, the Seeds of Death was the first Triton story I ever experienced. And, I don't know, I just have a, a lot of nostalgia for that, because it's the yeah. first time I'd really watched black and white TV as well. And I think, like, I just... I think his performance is great, but mm. he suffers from... Not a lot of his stuff exists. Mm. And although he comes back three times during the, the 70s and 80s... yeah. He didn't live to be part of kind of a renaissance of like, oh, he could do audios or things like yeah. that. So it's a bit like, I know Pertwee didn't, but Pertwee just feels so present in the 90s Yeah, that you kind of forget actually Pertwee didn't do that many kind of spin-off things either. Yes, yeah. There's also, he is always kind of the same in that there's existing stories where Hartnell gets kind of pushed and the character does develop. And he has a broader range. Patrick Troughton is known for just being a bit wizard-like. And he has, and he's mischievous. But um, any of the big episodes where he has a chance to 
develop or change are um, missing. So I'm thinking of like evil of evil of the Daleks and um, evil of the Daleks. <laughs> and power of the Daleks. And power of the Daleks. I, I, th- I think we're a bit. I think we were deprived of you know like a Triton that lived a bit longer and was in the air zone solution. Yeah. It would have ju- just another decade. Yeah. And he could have been all over those Bill Bags videos like everybody else. Yeah. Maybe it was karma for running off with another woman and having another family. <laughs> Wasn't he supposed to have died fucking a fan in a hot tub or something? I don't well, know, it's always t- dangerous to fuck a fan because you'll lose something <laughs> in the blades. I don't think it was a hot tub. I think I just made that bit up. But uh, anyone. Also, it's just that uh, everybody raves about him, which makes me want to be a bit con- contrarian. But also, Matt Smith was just... He watched Tomb of the Cybermen and was like, oh, I'm going to try and do that. (laughs) (laughs) Wacky! (laughs) What's a toothbrush? (laughs) That is the Matt Smith. uh, What's a girl? (laughs) So Land of the Blind uh, ran from the 12th of April to the 7th of June 1995 in Doctor Who magazine 224 to 226. 225 being a notable issue for me as uh, I crushed a Cadbury's cream egg against the cover of it and uh, the cover was ruined for years but I've still got that issue still with a bit of cream egg really? on the front. Yeah. Oh, you could give that a right old lick. <laughs> it's very and, and get that 90s sugary taste back. <laughs> you might have a sudden, you, lots of repressed memories might come back if you, if you give that magazine a good lick. Of me reading Doctor Who magazine in the Lamp Tavern. Yeah. Or it could be like Life on Mars where you do it and you wake up in 1996 <laughs> or whatever it is. In our old house. <laughs> As 12-year-old me, just yeah. like, oh, fuck, I've got to go through all this again. Um, Quick, everybody, lick the magazine <laughs> and we can return to our own time. <laughs> so, news at the time. Bill Baggs announced Cyber War by Nick Briggs, a war film starring the Cybermen. This would go through various incarnations, including one where the Ice Warriors and the Cybermen were mm. to fight. But um, Briggs later said in the book Downtime, The Lost Years of Doctor Who by Dylan Rees mm. that he actually thought it was a bit fanciful on uh, Bill Bagg's part that he would ever get it off the ground because yeah. it was just the thing he'd written was a war film yeah. and he was making films for £15,000. Mm. So. The bittersweet promise of those tiny columns of text in <laughs> Doctor Who magazine. Yeah. Speculating possible films. <laughs> straight to video projects, whatever. None of which happened. Yeah. It's like, the moral of the story is either, or either didn't happen or it's a CD. Yeah. <laughs> for, te- for 15 years, that was it. Yes, it's true. Peter Cushing's estate was valued at £282,000 on his death. Don't know why that's uh, relevant, but it was in Doctor Who magazine. Mm. The Ghosts of End Space was released in March of 1996. More than 30 years in the TARDIS earned Kevin Davis a nomination for the 1995 Video Home Entertainment Trade Awards, with the video having sold 25,000 copies. I loved that. Yeah, and in the next issue it's voted favourite video release of that year. That was, do you know, that was a big insight into loads of Doctor Who stories that I'd never seen because they weren't available on video. Yeah. Um, Android Invasion. I remember always just being like, I want to see that. I want to see the one where Sarah's face falls off. Yeah. Survival. Hadn't seen that. And that was just fucking nuts. I was like, what's that? The the Master and the Doctor strangling each other on a fiery end of the world planet? And an alien planet that looks like an alien planet as well. Yeah, it was great. There was that. And uh, do you remember Resistance is Useless? 
Yes. But, so that was a 30-minute documentary just um, before the Time Meddler went out in the 1992 repeat season. And it was basically just clips hosted by an anorak with mm. a brummy accent. And this yeah. anorak was like in mist and it was like a robot type thing. It's fucking <laughs> ridiculous. And the reason it's not been on uh, any of the, the DVD releases is because uh, the restoration team were like, we think it's offensive to fans. Really? Yeah. But it was just like, you could see clips from like the Ark yeah. and Terror of the Autons before it was colourised. And it was like, oh my God, will I ever get to see any of these? The answer is yes, you'll get to see them all. Why is it offensive to fans? Because the host is an anorak. Okay. I don't know. Doctor Who fans, in it? So, yeah, 30 years in the TARDIS and the video release more than 30 years in the TARDIS. I've seen that so many times. Yeah. Like, as a kid, I would just pour over that. It, to me, it's still the most... I think it's probably the definitive Doctor Who documentary from that period. There have been other documentaries since, because we've got shitloads of them on all the mm. DVDs, that are that kind of capture... Like go really insightful, but they're for fans. That is something yeah. you could show to somebody who's not a fan and go, this is what Doctor Who's about, and this yeah. is the history of the show. Yeah, and it was the, my first ever insight into seeing talking heads of the crew. I can remember just being like, Ben Aronovich, who the fuck's that? <laughs> uh, or, um, or like, why... Or why Toya, Wil- Toya Wilcox. Yeah. <laughs> and Mike Gatting, the English cricketer. The cricket guy, and... Um, Eric Saywood, like within his leather jacket, trying to look hard. Yeah. With a big leg stance. <laughs> and um, Terence Dix looking fucking rosy cheeks. <laughs> Terence Dix looking like he'd definitely been on the wine for a couple of years. Yeah, just like no, no skinny people at all in that documentary. <laughs> Kevin Davis, who directed that, uh, lives up the road from us. Ah. I went and had a coffee with him last summer. He was a nice chap. Also, Doctor Who fans were voting for the Doctor Who stories they most wanted on video. Yeah. And the number one one, the number one one, yeah. the most wanted video, was Attack of the Cybermen, beating Survival, State of Decay, Horror of Fang Rock, and all of Key to Time. What the fuck? What, what was wrong with 90s Doctor Who fans? Issue 226 featured an article called The Man Who Owns Doctor Who. And it was an interview with Philip Siegel. Uh-huh. And I don't know whether you remember it. They did all these illustrations of like what a TARDIS could look like. Oh. And it was like massive, like a cathedral. Yeah. Obviously, it didn't end up looking like that. I remember these from the Regeneration book. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of artwork in there. But this was like early on. It was like, it wasn't previous artwork that they'd done. It was just like what Doctor Who magazine mm. kind of commissioned, I think. Also, in this issue... Doctor Who TV movie script under development from the Fox Network. That This is one of the few times that we can actually say that movie happened yeah. because it became the TV movie. And perhaps most exciting was the fact that uh, Peter Davison presented the recent Pedigree Chum advertisements filmed at Croft's Dog Show in Birmingham. Why has nobody tried to sew that into some Doctor Who continuity somewhere? I've, they should do a dog... Uh... <laughs> They should do a Doctor Who story set at Crufts with K9. That's good. I think you should pitch that to Big Finish. <laughs> Doctor Who merchandise at the time. The Doctor Who phone cards, which I've recently become a proud owner of a full set. Uh, if you're interested in them, you should uh, have a scroll back to my Twitter earlier in the year and you'll see the greatest... A uh, bit of Doctor Who merchandise ever. If you're interested in them, you should have a fucking cold shower right now. <laughs> Perverts. Uh, they are some of the most shoddy Doctor Who merchandise of all time. Yeah, I've yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah. Shit, shit photoshopping. Shit photoshopping. New Adventures Out at the Time. Sanctuary by David A. McKinty. Infinite Requiem by Daniel Blythe. And Human Nature by Paul Cornell. Yeah. Read any of them? Human Nature. Yeah. Very good book. I would say it would make a very good TV episode. Yeah, but they'd never do that. They yeah. wouldn't. The, the Doctor can't have the same adventure twice. Sanctuary is a pure historical and um, Bernice falls in love with someone who I think a character that ends up coming back in some audio. Guy de Karnak. Yes. Um, who uh, got, gets one BBV audio, one that I'm a big fan of. Yeah. I wrote a uh, article for the Celestial Toy Room earlier in the year, or last last year, I can't remember when, um, about the ten best BBV releases, and I put yeah. that in my top ten. Yeah. It's a very subtle, chilled story, but it's just enjoyable. I've always really liked it. Missing Adventures at the time. Uh, time of Your Life by Steve Lyons. Dancing the Code by Paul Leonard. And The Menagerie by Martin Day. So The Menagerie, I remember being reading it when I was like 15, 16 and remember thinking this is quite an interesting like I remember it feeling really adult and yeah. like alt 90s sci-fi yeah probably not but you know yeah people talk about like spitting and blood and they've got <laughs> guns and then the TARDIS lands 100 pages in <laughs> so adult uh, videos out at the time were the Android Invasion, Carnival of Monsters, and the first four Key to Time stories. Do you remember those VHSs with the, the blue spe- spines? Blue spines, and they'd each got a piece of a segment of the key in yeah. a different colour, but it was not shaped like the Key to Time. Yeah. Motherfuckers. The TARDIS arrives at the Denisus Settlement, a multicultural spaceport in which all forms of life can pass through. The Doctor, Jamie and Zoe discover the port has been sealed off in an energy field and the inhabitants trapped and enslaved by the mysterious Vortexians. Any rebellions against their imprisonment sees inhabitants sentenced to torture within the Speculum, a portal which leaves its victims wiped of all humanity. The Vortexians follow a strict justice system in which they will never take the life of a prisoner. The Doctor is sentenced to exposure into the Speculum and survives with his character intact and now knowing the truth of the situation. The spaceport has been entrapped in the Time Vortex as a laboratory test to see if all life could be incorporated into the Time Vortex under the union of the Vortexians. In the confrontation, an inhabitant is injured and dies due to a weak heart condition and the Doctor convinces the Vortexians to destroy themselves following the logical conclusion of their judicial code. The inhabitants are returned to their rightful time and place. So we've talked a little bit about the Troughton era. I think Troughton gets the short end of the stick in the 90s because, as you said before, most of his stories are missing and I can't think of any classic missing adventures featuring him. He almost feels like a bit forgotten. Mm. Um, and I think he's had this renaissance ever since Matt Smith was like, Tomb of the Cybermen's bloody great. Yeah. And then at the anniversary when those nine missing episodes showed up. Yes. And with all the animations that have happened over the last few years, it feels like there's a new generation of fans that are discovering mm. him. Whereas in the 90s, he was a bit kind of like, well, we like William Hartnell because he was the first one. And, you know, a lot of his stories exist mm. and, you know, we can get them out. But Troughton, it was just like, two seasons of it basically don't exist. Mm. But this is my favourite Troughton TARDIS team um, with Jamie and Zoe. Yeah. Like, I fucking hate Victoria. Yeah. I'm not into her. Handy name, because she's named after the period that she's from. Yeah, it's true. Like, this, I'm assuming this is the first time you've experienced this comic strip. Yeah. What did you think? I thought it was an odd mashup of... Um... 
it remind it, it obviously it's the same kind of artist uh, that did uh, the Eighth Doctor stuff. Mm. So it felt like putting the Troughton team into an Eighth Doctor comic, yeah. but with a few strange Troughton nods. Like the characters that they encounter feel like they could be from a Troughton story, but in terms of the way it's designed and the scale of it is very Eighth Doctor comic strip. So, in my mind, this is up and, up until we started doing this podcast. Mm. This is what I thought Doctor Who comics were like. Yeah, like with the exception of the Eighth Doctor stuff, it was like some adventure that you just kind of slot in. Yeah, a nondescript bit of continuity. Like it, it's just you know it happens and you get to the end of it and you go, "Yep, yeah, that was Doctor Who." Mm. It's not great. But there's nothing wrong with it at the same time. Yeah, it's just an event. It's just an adventure that kind of unfurls and happens. Mm-hmm. Were you reading the comic strips at this time? No, I've never bought the magazine. I think I only started buying the magazine consecutively from just before the the three hundredth issue came out with the McGann CD. Right. Yes. So I started buying it from towards the end of the Glorious Dead because I got hooked on that. Um, and followed it consecutively, probably up until David Tennant's time, and then I gave up halfway through that, I think. So, during this period, they were jumping around from Doctor to Doctor each strip. So this was from issue 212 to 244, May 94 to September 96. It was just, you'd have a first Doctor one, then you'd have a second Doctor one, a fifth Doctor, like they'd just jump around, there was no kind of rhyme or reason, up until the point that the eighth Doctor comic starts... Now, what do you think of this approach? I feel like it makes sense because if you're you're publishing a magazine for a show that isn't on TV, and so at this point, how can you gauge what your audience is in terms of when were they watching the show? Yeah, and similarly to to what um Gary Russell said he did with Big Finish, he was like, "We're not going to do one kind of Doctor Who. We're going to do we're going to do everything because that's the range of fandom at yeah. the moment." So I think it makes sense for them to do this. I, I see where you're coming from, but the thing it does to me is make the comic strip disposable. Yeah. Because there's no running arc, there's no... There's no of, drama. There's no. You, it's just bits of Doctor Who slotted in between this story and this story. Mm. And it's nice to see your old favourites again yeah. in the comic strip form. But you know, you're not so you're not bringing back someone from a year ago from a fifth Doctor comic strip. Now, it would have been great if they'd done that and jumped mm. around, but it just it, it just doesn't really happen. So here we get the Doctor, Jamie and Zoe. Now, again, it's part of the kind of, in the 90s, they've been forgotten a bit or a bit overlooked. They've never really had a comic strip run Mm. because obviously their era on TV happened before the magazine started. So it's only from Tom Baker onwards you get kind of... Yeah, there were Patrick Troughton comic strips, but they were with... um... TV comic. Yes, they were with John and Gillian. Yeah, John and Gillian. 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 So Zoe appears in two Doctor Who annual stories and four DWM strips. Later, she's she appears in a couple of, in four IDW comic strips too. Jamie fares a bit better, getting five annual stories and six TV comic stories. And he adds a really odd renaissance in the, with the two Doctors, and then he's also in the sixth Doctor comic strip, um, the the World Shapers. Yeah, which is really odd that you would bring back the same companion. They were talking about this on, on the time last today. I was just listening to it, and uh, they were saying how 
in that storyline, mm. it's obviously like everybody thinks Jamie's mental because he's broken the Time Lord conditioning. Ah. Which I think we should cover that at some point. Before we'll get to that. We always say that. We'll cover that at some point. If we yeah. covered everything we said we were going to cover, we would just podcast and that's it. Yeah. The second Doctor didn't get a missing adventure until ten books in and only got four in the entire range. And can you name any of them? The Dark Path. Yeah, everyone just remembers that because there's, there's the master on the front. Yeah. He fared a bit better in the BBC books range with the murder game was the second out of the gate and got 12 books out of 76. He's had six DWM comic strips in the 90s. And obviously Big Finish only started doing him like a decade ago or something like that. So he's kind of the least covered in the spin-off media, I think, in a way. Yeah. How do you feel about how they kind of rep- that TARDIS team are represented here? They they all seem on point. Yeah. Yeah. Jamie Scottish. Zoe um thinks she fucking knows it all. Uh <laughs> um the second doctor I think they get his mannerisms quite well, the whole he always likes to touch his chin. Mm. He does that a lot. I think the characters are just about the second doctor, Jamie and Zoe, like yeah. but a lot of their a lot of their character is in the performance. Yeah. So every time a missing Hartnell shows up, no one's really shocked by William Hartnell's performance because we know what it's like. But, um, every time a missing Troughton shows up, everyone's like, oh, it's just, just so much in the performance you don't kind of realise is there. Yeah. And I think I think he's one of those doctors that's quite hard to do in comic strip. Mm. I can see why perhaps why people have strayed away from it. Yeah. In fact, I don't know whether I've ever read a book or... Uh, a comic strip that really captures that doctor at all. No. You get that from also the like there's lots of pictures of him looking quite stern as the doctor and they never look like him as the character because mm-hmm. he's they they're just not how he comes across on screen. Yeah. There's a noticeable like this is that TARDIS team and there is a noticeable difference when you watch like Troughton in his final season, his hair's longer, he's just, it's a little bit chubbier. Yeah. And he looks worn out. Yeah. Whereas in the first few series he kind of looks at so there is kind of like a marked difference, I think. Yeah. Um in fact I was listening to the Doctor Who show, which was uh, another podcast, and they were saying how for a long time this was the only second Doctor TARDIS team anybody really knew of. Yeah. Because everything else was missing. Yeah. And Zoe got a big bum on screen. <laughs> It's true, but it's it is also this thing of big glittery bottom. If <laughs> you look at the size of that thing, yeah. So like in the nineties, it was Jamie and Zoe came with the second Doctor because Victoria's stories were all missing until Tomb of the Cybermen showed up. Yeah, there was a couple of episodes, and then like the Ben and Polly ones, they're all still missing. Really, you just you start to see them show up in animations now. But yeah, so uh, the Vortexians. Yeah. That's a good name for a monster, isn't it? Well, who saw the twist coming that they're from the Vortex? Ne- never would have seen it coming. Now, these were designed by a Doctor Who fan. Really? So, Doctor Who magazine ran a competition mm-hmm. to design a monster, and the Vortexians from Paul Fisher were the winner, <sighs> and so that's where the story came from. The runner-up designs were also had cameos in the strip. These were the Zrontax, designed by Richard Burnell, and the Isoids, designed by Jason Powdrill, and the Pharaohs, designed by Justin Ascom. That's interesting. If any of those fans are listening, get in touch. Get in touch. We'd love to have you on to talk about your experiences. Yeah. I entered this competition. Did you? Did not win. What did you draw? It was basically a small little bald man. It was basically our dad, which I think <laughs> says a lot about... It was like a... 
it had like it was a bald man. Yeah. It was like a bit hunched over. That's dad. <laughs> oh, was it called the dad? Uh, it wasn't. It was called the dad Tron. No, the... It wasn't. I would love to find that picture, but I don't think I've got it anywhere. It sounds like a Santaran or the collector from the Sunmakers. Yeah, but he had pointy teeth. I don't know why. I don't know why they didn't go for it. But this isn't the first time a design the monster competition has taken place. TV Action and Countdown ran a design a monster competition in 1972, and the winning design from Ian Farrington, the Ugrax, yeah, uh, were presented in the the, the third Doctor strip, the Urgak. Wow. Yeah, there we go. I submitted a drawing to the Blue Peter Design of Monster Competition, the Absorbal Off one. And what was yours? Mine was of a wal- walrus man. <laughs> that cool. was it. I just thought they just stick animal heads on on people, so just yeah, pick that. That is the Russell T Davis era. He's like, on this planet, they evolved from walruses. Yeah. On this planet, cats. It appeared on TV. Did they it? had like a they had a slideshow. Are you like are a montage are you of, dra- canon? of of drawings of like runners up, and I got um. My Walrus Man was on TV. Fucking hell. <laughs> right, stop the podcast. Yeah. It's probably on YouTube somewhere. Oh my God, you're such a celebrity. <laughs> Not only that, but you had uh, a message from um, Eric Roberts recently, didn't you? I did, yeah. I thought, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was my birthday recently and Dylan bought me a cameo from Eric Roberts. Yeah. And it sh- it just is another demonstration of the range of his acting ability because <laughs> he begins... Acting as the master and then transitions into Eric Roberts. And it's smooth. You watch him do it. In fact, we'll drop it into the podcast now. Jackson, the master here. Apparently, you're having a birthday. Troubling those. But I'll celebrate if I must. I always dress for the occasion. And we can listen to your podcast, Doctor Who... Too hot for TV. I do love hearing myself discussed. <laughs> Jackson, Eric Roberts here. I love the name Jackson. So Dylan was kind enough to inform me that you have a birthday coming up. I do really appreciate the podcast. And I appreciate your love of the whole Doctor Who phenomenon. And I really do hope you have a fantastic birthday, Jackson. You know, on uh, Grey's Anatomy, I have a son named Jackson. Told you, I love the name. And I guess, so does my character on Grey's. Take care of yourself, buddy. And wear a mask. Peace out. What do we think of the Vortexians and their design? I feel it's just generic, like... Doctor Who comic strip villains. In terms of, they always want to make something big and floaty and filled with energy because yeah. it's something they can't do on TV so they just like anything else we've come across in the comic yeah other inhabitants of uh, Denesis 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 yeah, the Denesis. planet Dennis the planet Dennis include a Zabi a Vord a Fishman from the Fishman of Candelinga and <laughs> <laughs> and a Korad from Geolingo yeah and a Korad from Peril in Mechanistra are these are these real? I, don't, I didn't spot any of these. No, but I thought I spotted a monoid. Okay. There we go. Aye, aye. Aye, aye. That's what people come here for, the jokes. <laughs> Written by Scott Gray. It's got a few nice ideas to it, hasn't it? 
Yeah, the best. Thi- well, no, I, it's it's just I think it's just a solid little you know three part comic. It's mm. not a big epic thing. It's just does what it wants to do. We know what the best bit of it is is the fact that they refer to the time vortex and it's the Troughton vortex yeah. from the title sequence. Yeah, and we see it in the sky. Yes, that's pretty cool. Really good. I've got a theory. Go on. Do you know why the vortex changes from Doctor to Doctor? Why is that? Because it looks that way because of the, of the TARDIS scanner equipment. And as the TARDIS evolves, it upgrades. And has an, it's like going from SD to HD. <laughs> I fucking love it. I just made I'm, that up. I'm into it. Doesn't explain why the Doctor's face is in it, though, does it? Uh, if that's when he goes out for a swim in the, <laughs> in in the, the vortex. vortex. This is, yeah, some nice ideas. I love the idea of five seconds hard labour that completely destroys you. Yes. Which I think is, is quite fun. And the spaceport's a great design as well. Yeah. Describes my job, that. <laughs> five seconds hard labour. Um, Destroyed. Yeah. Are you, do you know, this is going to sound random, but on the subject of the vortex... I find it interesting when it crops up in old in the classic series because, like, they go into it quite, like, in in say what is it the enemy of the world? Mm. Uh, you get a glimpse of that then when Salamander gets thrown out into it, and then it's not it's rarely kind of touched upon. And another interesting thing is that why Sharda is missing that would have included a big vortex kind of mm. effect sequence, which you get cobbled together on the VHS version yes yeah like it's only become a big central thing in the new series I I feel like I tell you what the Jodie Whittaker vortex yeah when they're travelling through that looks fucking great it is good it's very good Jamie's a racist to a vortexian (laughs) what 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 does it mean what's that word what what does he call them I could call them like a shash Shasuka? What's that? I don't know. Something Scottish. He says okay. something Scottish. Yeah. And they think it's racist. The Vortexians are actually a little bit funny. Yeah. You know, like they do this whole, um, we're experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by when they're about to die. Yeah. Then they go, uh, we apologise for any inconvenience as they talk yeah. themselves, which I thought was quite amusing. Yeah. And yeah, it's just, it, it, it just feels very throwaway. If it was a broadcast story, it'd be like the Crotons or the Ice Warriors where you're just like... Yeah, so that was another bit of Doctor Who there. Mm-hmm. It could do with an extra episode to, yeah. to you know, to kind of beef it up a little bit. But ultimately it's resolved by the Doctor goes and gets a gadget from the TARDIS and dispatches them, which is a bit tedious. Yeah. Um, the, but as you said, there's the artwork is some nice stuff. There's that shot of, sort of one of the cliffhangers of Troughton being like, yeah. put in the... What's the speculum, which I'm sure is part of your body. Yes. <laughs> or is it a device for like... Wait. A speculum is a medical tool for investigating body orifices. Interesting. So no wonder he looks so terrified. He's just been... He's just have a speculum put in him. It's what you use for having your vagina examined. <laughs> I've never had my vagina examined. Because <laughs> the first question that comes up from Google is, does a speculum hurt if you're a virgin? Oh, there we go. We are just bringing the knowledge, aren't we? Yeah. To everybody, all the Doctor Who fans, nobody knew. And also, the last frame where they walk away and there's the Doctor kind of looking back as that woman hugs the corpse of yeah. her dead father, isn't it? Yeah. Which I thought was quite a an interesting frame. You know, just I feel thing. like they ran out of time. That, that, that last page, everything gets resolved and wrapped up on one page. I feel like that was quite rushed. Anything else you want to say on it? Mm, no. There's, there's not. There, I just felt like there wasn't a lot to say about this at all. Yeah. So does it clang or bang? Oh, 
I would say it's a banger. Would you? I would say it's a clanger. Really? Uh, it's, I, you know, we're just disagreeing left, right, and centre. Wow. So we didn't have a lot to say on that one. So I want to know. We've done. We've been doing. This is the fifteenth episode of the podcast. What makes a good extended universe Doctor Who story? Authors going off and just doing their own thing and not really caring about trying to fit in to the TV show. Yeah. I feel like it's not good enough for it to just be, oh, here's the second Doctor and some Daleks, which yeah. I feel like some sometimes it feels like with Big Finish and some of the comic strips. Like As, as stupid as it sounds, it has to be the good storytelling first and foremost like so like when you get to the eighth doctor's run mm. it's a real thought out kind of story arc for all the characters and it goes off and does wild things that the tv show couldn't possibly do but it's it's not trying hard to be different it's just mm. like let's see where it goes yeah um so that's to me is one of the main reasons why both of these in a certain way fail yeah because it's just they're both just too content with the idea of being Doctor Who. Yeah. And then the, the stories just aren't quite as exciting and gripping as, as you think they should be. Next time, we're back in the 90s. Yes. And we're going to look at some paths never taken. So, audio-wise, do you want to tell the people what we're doing? We're doing Thin Ice by Mark Platt. So this was a big finish audio that was kind of what they wanted to do for season 27. The script was never actually written. So we're going to look at that. We're not doing a comic strip. No. We're going to do something that was never made, not even as an audio. We're doing the Johnny Byrne Doctor Who script for uh, for one of the movies that was never made. Now, this one, I believe, went through several drafts and is known as The Time Lord or The Last of the Time Lords. Mm. I've not read it yet. We've got a copy of the script, and we're going to go and see this path never trodden, but I believe this one was from around 1990. So it'll be interesting to see what the Doctor Who movie that never was was like. Tangent! I know. And if anybody's listening, I'm desperately trying to get hold of the Fathers and Brothers script by John Leakley, which apparently did leak on the internet in the 90s. So if anybody has a copy or knows where there might be one, please get in touch, because these are the sort of things that give my life meaning. Yeah, so if anyone's got a leaked version of the Leakley script, maybe via WikiLeaks, WikiLeakley. <laughs> if you've got a leaked version of the Leakley script that was leaked on the internet illegally... Then we'd like to have a look at it. <laughs> but until next time, if you want to catch us, I'm on Twitter at, at DylanDoesWho... And you run the official Doctor Who Too Hot for TV yeah, Twitter. Yeah, which, which is at Too Hot for TV. Yeah, um, although there are more than one Too Hot for TV things. And when our last episode came out, I accidentally tagged some random woman who was called Too Hot for TV. Um, I think we're, we're at Too Hot for underscore TV. Right. Is it for the number or for the word? For the word. For the word. Great. And apparently... The way to get your podcast more listeners and stuff is if you could leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. I mean, if you listen to it, like, only if it's a positive review. If you've got bad things to say, don't bother. But if you want to leave us a review, like, those guys are great, then please do. Otherwise, until next time, I've been Dylan. I've been Jack. And we are Doctor Who Too Hot for TV.
Pop on TV. Dylan's feeling a bit worse for wear. Um, I'm, uh, I'm absolutely fine. Okay. Don't you worry about me. Okay. Uh, I just had a very bad case of the hiccups last night. Yeah. That's it. We're, we're groundbreaking news here. I got laid for the first time in five months. Did you? Yeah. With that, we should put this in the podcast, definitely. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> Nature's healing itself again. Jack's spreading his seed around the United Kingdom. Well, just just North London. North London. Are you going to marry her? Um, or are you going to not speak to her again like everybody else does when they meet on an app? I don't know. <laughs> Too many questions. Yeah.